Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. There are a lot of dark chapters in American history books, and hopefully none of these will be new to you. Slavery, the Trail of Tears, Japanese internment camps, plus the native genocide that enabled all the rest of them. But there's one thing that we've never really talked about, and that I had certainly never heard of or read about in any history book, before an innocuous-looking title crossed my desk called The Trials of Nina McCall. Scott W. Stern's book details the American plan, a decades-long government initiative conceived in World War I, crystallized in World War II, justified through the 70s, and still with us on the books today. The American plan was one of surveillance and incarceration, designed to lock up quote-unquote promiscuous women. It was one of the biggest mass quarantines in history. And until I read Scott's book, I had no idea it had ever even happened. Scott joins us from New York to talk about his groundbreaking work in bringing the American plan to light. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. So like a lot of people, I think, going into this book, I had very little idea of what the American plan was. I mean, it sounds just so wholesome. So can you tell the story of how you stumbled upon the American plan Yeah, sure. Uh, When I was a freshman in college, one of the very first courses I took was called Media and Medicine in Modern America. And in the second week of the course, which was my second week of college, the professor uh, was talking about how difficult it was to treat sexually transmitted infections, syphilis and gonorrhea, in the early 20th century. And a big reason for that was that no one was really allowed to talk about them. They were so stigmatized. You couldn't print those words in the newspaper. Uh, As late as 1934, the U.S. Surgeon General couldn't say the word syphilis on the radio. Mm. And the professor added that, um, you know, the one way that people were really able to talk about this was this World War I era effort to combat the supposed scourge of prostitution. And almost as an afterthought, the professor mentioned during World War I, there were even concentration camps for prostitutes. Uh, And then he moved on. And I was like, hold on a minute. Uh, so I, I had never heard of that. And the term concentration camp in particular has such salience that uh, I Googled it and I didn't find much. Uh, and then I went to Wikipedia and I didn't find anything. So um, I decided to dig a little bit. Um, I came across a couple titles of some books. Um, and eventually I decided to, to write about sort of the American plan as best I understood it, these 
quote-unquote concentration camps for prostitutes for the like very short paper I had to do for that class. Um, but when I finished the paper, I, I, I didn't feel like I really understood the American plan. So I then decided really to devote the rest of my college career uh, and when I got my master's um, pretty much exclusively to the American plan. Um, I found excuses to write about it in pretty much every class, including some where it really didn't make much sense, like the the history of pollution. They let me write about it. So that phrase that so caught your attention, concentration camps for prostitutes, sounds bad enough on its own. But the American plan was about a lot more than detaining women, and it went on long past its original start date in the 1910s. Yeah. Can you tell us about the real scope of the plan? Right. So what it was was that um, uh, government agents, federal, state, and local, would, would walk down the street, and any woman whom they quote-unquote reasonably suspected of having cephalus or gonorrhea, they could detain her, have her taken to the health officer's office, and have her forcibly examined for STIs. If she tested positive, and this was a time when uh, false positive rates could be as high as 25%, but if she tested positive, she could be locked away in a detention house or reformatory, basically a penal institution with uh, no trial, no hearing, no due process. And she would remain in these institutions, which some women did call concentration camps, for weeks or for months. And when she was inside these institutions, uh, an infected woman would be treated uh, for the sexually transmitted infection. But, you know, before uh, the advent of antibiotics, there really were very few effective treatments for syphilis or gonorrhea. So the most common treatments inside American plant institutions for decades was injections of mercury or injections of arsenic-based drugs, which do very little to cure you but uh, will kill you. And in the process, they will hurt a tremendous amount. Uh, women in these institutions were also made to labor. They sometimes created commercial products, which were then sold uh, for profit um, by the institution. They would uh, scrub floors and wash dishes. If they misbehaved, they would be beaten. Sometimes their heads would be shaved. Um, some women were eugenically sterilized. And all of this was in the name of curing them and morally reforming them. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it has ramifications and echoes in so many other tragedies of history, like modern prisons, which is kind of astonishing. Totally. And and the American plan uh, literally laid the groundwork for the expansion of mass incarceration of women in the 20th century. Um, many of the uh, institutions that were created under the American plan became the foundation of modern women's prisons. Where I live in Connecticut, the main women's prison is the York Correctional Institute in Niantic. That facility was originally built in 1918 to house women under the American plan. And that's true of several women's prisons across the country. Oh, wow. Where do we see echoes of the American plan later in the 20th century? In the book, you write that no historian has really described the plan going much past the 20s, but you write very convincingly that it did. So how were these laws and justifications used in those later decades? Well, uh, from the 1910s and uh, through certainly the mid-20th century and in some places into as late as the, the mid-70s, um, they were used as a method of policing women. They were, they were never really about controlling infection because if they were, um, they would have been locking up men too. Or, or really, they wouldn't have been locking anyone up but just having better sex education. Uh, rather, the American plan was about controlling women at a time when 
Women were beginning to organize politically for the first time, to get formally educated for the first time. The American plan began at the peak of the suffrage movement. And at the end of the 1910s, when the American plan began, rates of premarital sex were going up, rates of divorce were going up. So this was quite literally the patriarchy striking back. Um, So for decades, that's how these laws were used. Uh, But even after um, the American plan ended uh, in in most places um, in the 60s and and then in the 70s, uh, the laws all remained on the books, and they remain on the books to this day. And they're not just, you know, sitting there quietly. In the 1980s and early 1990s, um, during the the sort of peak of the hysteria over the uh, HIV-AIDS epidemic, many people across the country proposed systems of quarantine for those with uh, HIV or suspected of having HIV, uh, including and especially sex workers. And when these uh, officials did this, sometimes they would cite American plan laws. And uh, when a handful of cases of quarantine did take place, mostly of sex workers who were deemed, quote unquote, recalcitrant, uh, these individuals would sue for their freedom and they would invariably lose. And the courts would cite American plan precedents. So, you know, the plan lingers in that way. Uh, The laws remain. But I think even more importantly, the plan remains as a philosophy. It's an attitude toward women, toward infection. Um, It's about stigmatizing marginalized people and stigmatizing medical conditions. Yeah. I mean, during the 80s and the 90s, there was ACT UP and other sort of resistance movements that were fighting against that stuff. But it doesn't sound like anyone was really fighting for women during the dawn of the American plan. Was, Was anyone at a high level of government or journalism or, you know, public institutions at all fighting for these women? Because it's happening at the same time as the suffragette movement, the women's rights movement. I mean, Margaret Sanger, Eleanor Roosevelt. Did anyone care? (laughs) Well, it's interesting you mentioned Margaret Sanger and Eleanor Roosevelt because sad I am to say they were both supporters of the American plan. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, attended many meetings um, at which elite women discussed the American plan, explicitly discussed quarantine camps and then voted in favor of supporting it. Eleanor Roosevelt herself raised a lot of money for the largest private organization supported the American plan. In fact, she raised so much money for them that they considered giving her uh, their highest honor. Um, Elite women were complicit in the American plan, and this was because the philosophy that undergirded the American plan, that sexually active working class women, largely non-white women, needed to be policed, needed to be locked up in order to be reformed. That was, that was an incredibly common philosophy among those with means, among those with privilege. Um, you know, th- this was not controversial. This was just the accepted wisdom that certain women were fallen and they needed to be uplifted and they needed to be shown the path. Um, but there was active resistance to the American plan from the very beginning. It didn't come from the ranks of the suffragists. It didn't come from the ranks of journalists. It really came from the, the women themselves, the women who were being locked up from the very beginning Women would sue the government to try to get their freedom. Uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of women escaped from American plan institutions, sometimes scaling barbed wire in order to do so. Hundreds of women uh, rioted, assaulted their captors, um, jumped out windows one time to their death uh, in order to escape American plan institutions. A number of American plan institutions caught fire, many of those fires set by the inmates themselves. I found records of women going on hunger strikes or leaping from moving trains in order to uh, avoid going to American plan institutions. And this resistance continued unabated for the American plan's entire decades-long existence. And finally, in the 60s and 70s, in many places, it it did succeed in actually um, causing the plan to stop being enforced in those places. 
Mm. Right. And that resistance is how you found your your titular heroine, Nina McCall. How did you discover this protagonist and what was her role in that resistance? Yeah. So when I was a junior in college, I was doing uh, an independent study on uh, American plan laws and lawsuits. Um, and I was ranting to the professor who was overseeing the, the study about how frustrating it was that I couldn't find the voices and the words of the women who were actually incarcerated. It was it was frustrating. Um, and she recommended that I write to every state archive in the country and see maybe they had some trial transcripts from when these women sued the government. Maybe some trial transcripts survived. So uh, one afternoon, I wrote 50 emails to every state archive. And the very first archive to write back was the Archive of Michigan. They had one trial transcript for me. And uh, it was from the case of a, of a young woman named Nina McCall. And that's how I discovered Nina. Um, I discovered other trial transcripts over the years and other um, places where uh, I would find these women's voices in city council hearings and in testimony to journalists. But Nina's transcript was by far the longest, uh, the most detailed, and to me, the most affecting. Um, Nina really exemplifies so many methods of resistance to the American plan. She was a a young woman born um, in the year 1900 on a farm in rural central Michigan. And when she was 18 years old, she was detained, uh, forcibly examined, and told she had gonorrhea. Uh, and that was the moment of her first act of resistance. Um, the health officer said that he, he found her infected with gonorrhea. She said she couldn't possibly have it. She'd never had sex. Uh, he said she had it. She said she didn't. They went back and forth. And finally, he turned on her and thundered, young lady, do you mean to call me a liar? And Nina uh, shot back, yes, sir, I do. If you say I'm infected, yes, I do. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to overstate just how bold a young woman would have had to have been in the year 1918 to call a male authority figure a liar to his face. But in spite of that boldness, Nina was coerced into locking herself away in a penal institution called the Bay City Detention Hospital. She spent almost three months behind bars there being injected with mercury, which caused her tremendous pain. It caused her hair to start to fall out, uh, her teeth to start to fall out. Um, and eventually she was released and she returned home, but it was to a life she no longer recognized. Um, her mother had remarried in the time she'd been away. She couldn't find a job because everyone had heard she'd been in this institution. And what's worse, a government agent kept coming around to her home and telling Nina that she had to continue taking injections of mercury on an outpatient basis. So Nina then resisted in another way. Uh, eventually she fled she hid out um, in central Michigan and, and then in Detroit for several months in order to avoid taking these injections of mercury. But then the government agent started threatening Nina's mother. So she returned to her home and sued the government. So that's that's yet another uh, strategy of resistance. And I won't tell you what, what happened as a result of that lawsuit. Um, people have to read the book. Uh, but I promise uh, the result of that lawsuit is not what you'd expect. Uh, and Nina, to me, really exemplifies so many methods of resistance from escape to filing a lawsuit and finally years later to just living her life. You know, not everyone was able to resist in overt ways like rioting. Um, some people resisted in, in more covert ways, but by simply continuing to, to have sex, to date, to live their lives and to make their own choices, uh, these women resisted a philosophy and a narrative that said that they were not capable of doing that and they shouldn't be allowed to. Right. So, I mean, were there any limitations, I guess, in focusing on Nina? I don't want to, you know, give away the results of the trial or anything, but, you you know, you talk about 
how the American plan, like like so many other, you know, American institutions, disproportionately affected non-white women and especially right. poor women. Um, so what did their resistance look like? What did their stories look like and how did they fight back? Yeah, I mean, that is a drawback of focusing on Nina. Nina was a white woman. I mean, she was she was working class. She was the child of immigrants, but the plan did disproportionately affect non-white women. And they were subject to much worse conditions in many cases. They would sometimes be locked in whole separate institutions, which were demonstrably worse. Um, even inside the same institution, they were sometimes segregated. They faced harsher punishments. And this really was stunningly racist. Um, in El Paso uh, in uh, the late 1910s, not only were Mexican-American women more likely uh, to be locked up under the plan, but the darker their skin, the longer they spent behind bars. Wow. Um, one reason that women of color were often punished so harshly is that they were often the most determined resistors. And there are a number of cases of, of women of color kind of leading revolts against the American plan. All of these acts of resistance have been largely erased from the historical narrative, but uh, it's the resistance of those women in particular that, that really have been um, alighted. So I guess the big question is, why has no one heard about the American plan was the plan and the full scope of its history intentionally obscured? Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the book, I, I talk about why so few people have ever heard of this. Certainly, I had never heard of this. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that the plan was incredibly decentralized. So to understand how the plan worked in Kansas, you'd have to go to Kansas. To understand how the plan worked in Oregon, you'd have to go to Oregon. But the real reason, I think, that the plan has been so effectively forgotten, and it was never a secret is that the people who were most likely to reveal the cruelty of it were intentionally silenced. The women locked up under the American plan were often not allowed to write letters home. They would be censored if they tried to tell their family or their friends what was actually going on behind bars. And then once these women were released, spending time in the American plan institutions was so stigmatized that there would be real consequences if they told people where they'd been. They might be abandoned by their family or their friends. They might not be able to find work, so that would have material consequences for their life. Uh, Nina had a ton of trouble finding a job because everyone had heard where she'd been. And so the people who were most likely to condemn the American plan really didn't have the ability to do so. Yeah, of course. And I mean, that's one of the main focuses of your book, right? One of the main intentions is to bring that history to light. But I mean, beyond that, what are the broader implications of the American plan that you see? Like, why is this history so relevant today? I just read an article about how there's been like truly ludicrous things happening with textbooks like Martin Luther King being left out but Jefferson Davis being included or the term democracy being replaced with the term republic uh, to please um, conservative book buying markets. And, and that's such a shame and it's such a scandal. And if that's what's happening in our textbooks, if that's what's happening in, in the classrooms in high schools and in, in, in lower schools, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to see the American plan being included in these books, but it's vital that the American plan and other uh, uh, programs like it be taught uh, and be taught when kids are young so that we, we, we aren't taught a hagiography, we aren't taught myths, that we're taught the real history and we're, we're taught that, you know, terrible things have happened. Our government locked tens, probably hundreds of thousands of women uh, without due process in what some did call concentration camps. And they did it because they thought they were helping, and they did it because they were scared of a particular disease. If we understand that history and if we really know it, we can shift the paradigm back and make something like that 
unthinkable. If we understand um, the human costs of this kind of mass incarceration, we can make contemporary mass incarceration less acceptable. If we understand the way that the government stigmatized and criminalized those who, by circumstance or by choice, were forced to sell sex, we can make the lives of those who sell sex today better. Uh, We're seeing legislation passed right now that's making the lives of those who sell sex much harder. Um, And uh, by better understanding the American plan, we can understand what a cruel and foolish mistake that is. To read more on how the American plan was twisted into new and nefarious uses over the 20th century, and to find out what happened to Nina's court case, you'll have to read Scott W. Stern's new book, The Trials of Nina McCall. It's the most shocking thing I've read all year, and given Twitter these days, that is saying something. We've got links, as ever, on our episode page. See you next week, and until then, take care and stay sharp. 